Okay, listen. We are taking the whole month to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Easter is the single most important holiday in all the world. Christmas means nothing without the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The cross means nothing without the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Therefore, Easter is the single most important holiday in all the world. So we're not going to celebrate on Easter Sunday. We're going to celebrate it all month long, talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Last week, we answered the question, did it really happen and does it really matter? We answered that from Scripture. This week, we're going to be looking at the doctrinal substance of Christ's resurrection, the doctrinal substance of Christ's resurrection. What does it mean? And then next week, we'll be answering this question of, do I really care? Or the practical implications of Christ's resurrection. So 1 Corinthians 15 is all about that, the resurrection of Christ and ours. We looked at much of it last week. We'll look at much of it again this week. We're going to read a few verses just as a backdrop before we pray. So 1 Corinthians 15, let's read verses 17 through 20. Paul the Apostle writes and says in verse 17, And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless, and you're still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only in this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. Lord, thank you for that glorious truth in front of us that indeed Christ has risen from the dead. Thank you that we who have put our faith in Christ are the great harvest referenced here. Thank you that we look forward to the day of our own resurrection from the dead in glory. Thank you, Jesus, that you, our Redeemer, are alive, that you ever live to make intercession for us, that you rule and you reign on high, that you're coming again, that you'll be visible to every human eye, that you'll set up and establish your kingdom on earth, that the dead in Christ shall rise, that the heavens and the earth shall be renewed, that all mourning, death, crying, and pain will be abolished and will live with you forever in glory. Thank you for these wonderful truths, Lord. We pray that they would profoundly impact our hearts and our minds, that you would help us to set our minds on the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father in glory, Christ who is our life. And we pray that our lives would be in consonance with this glorious doctrine of your resurrection, that we live in light of it, We'd live with great hope because of it. We'd walk in obedience because you live and you've given us so great a salvation. And you're coming again to judge and to rule and reign over all the earth. And so please, Lord, give us ears to hear and hearts to respond. And please help me to preach these wonderful things in a way that is faithful to your word and brings praise to your name. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, again, last week was very important. If you weren't here, you can go online and get that message. But we asked this question, did the resurrection happen? Did it really happen? And does it really even matter? Because in 1 Corinthians, Paul hinges the validity of Christianity on Christ's physical resurrection from the dead in glory. 
That's a, that's a big deal. And so we examined some of the evidence for the resurrection of, the Jesus, of Jesus Christ. We, we looked at the fact of his empty tomb and how that testifies to his resurrection from the dead. We looked at the eyewitness testimony and accounts and how that testifies to his resurrection from the dead. We talked about every changed life and how that testifies to Christ's bodily resurrection from the dead in glory, including your changed life is a testimony that your Redeemer lives. And so when we looked at those things, we discerned that the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is historical, evidential, and defensible. It is historical, evidential, and defensible. And that's important because, again, as the New Testament says, Christianity stands or falls with the literal, physical, bodily, glorious resurrection of Christ from the dead. If Christ has not risen, our text said then our faith is useless. It's vain. We're still in our sins. But as the text says, he did rise from the dead. The first fruits of a great harvest of all those who are his, who will also raise in resurrection. So we believe in Christianity without doubt that it really did happen, that it really does matter. But we're asking today, what does it really mean? What is the doctrinal substance of the resurrection of Christ? And there's three doctrines that we could look at that pertain to, or really hinge upon, or dependent upon Christ's resurrection. The first would be the doctrine of justification. We'll talk about it just briefly, but most of us are familiar with that. We talk about it all time, all the time. The second one is the assurance of the believer, the doctrine of assurance. Our assurance in salvation is dependent upon Christ's physical resurrection. And then thirdly, the doctrine of glorification, the believer's future glorification in Christ is dependent upon, follows after, patterned on, consonant with Christ's resurrection from the dead. So the first thing that we want to mention is this doctrine of justification. We understand what justification means. It is that declaration by God about us because we put our faith in Jesus Christ and what he's done, that we are now not guilty before him and we are righteous before him. Justification is that declaration of God about us because we've put our faith in Jesus Christ, that we are no longer guilty because Christ died in our place and that we are now righteous because Christ lived a perfect life and rose from the dead for us. And so Romans chapter four, verse 25 says, Christ was delivered up because of our transgressions and raised because of our justification. Justification hinges upon Christ's resurrection from the dead. If Christ did not rise from the dead, then there is no justification for the believer. There is no way that we can be declared innocent before God and righteous before God unless Christ rose from the dead. We know that he died on the cross, a substitutionary death in our pay, place, excuse me, to pay the price for our sins, which were many. Can I get an amen? amen. And he paid for some of them. No, he paid for most of them. No, he paid for all of them. Christ said upon the cross, Tetelestai, it is finished, paid in full. 
That's a full penalty for my sins, for your sins, for the sins of the world. We're paid by Christ's death on the cross. And that the full wrath of God was poured out on Christ instead of us at the cross. So it was done. The certificate of debt that was hostile to us, the book of Colossians talks about. Where God kept a record of our wicked deeds was nailed to the cross with Christ, taken out of the way so that we could be declared not guilty before God because we are in Christ who paid the price for our sins. This is good news. But it is only good news if Christ rose from the dead because what his resurrection is, is the ratification of that full payment. The resurrection of Christ is the ratification of that full payment. In other words, it is the Father saying, yes, it was truly paid in full. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him, speaking of Christ, who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalves. So when he rose him from the dead, the father was saying, there is no more wrath to be poured out. There is no more penalty to be paid. There is nothing more to be done to atone for our sins. Christ has done it all. I am ratifying this payment by rising him from the dead to new life, thereby conquering not only sin, not only the devil, but death, which is the penalty of sin once and for all. And so now, because our redeemer lives the record of his perfect life can be attributed to our account, reckoned to our account before God. So the injustification, we're not only not guilty, but we are now righteous. We have merit before God through our union by faith in Christ so that we are the beloved daughters and sons of God. Our standing before him is in grace because Christ died, was buried, and rose again to new and glorious life. We have new and glorious life. You see, the cross and the resurrection are not mutually exclusive. They are a singular salvific event. Both are necessary for our justification, for our salvation. Now, briefly on the doctrine of assurance. How do we know that we're saved? Because, I mean, daily, right? We know it at the moment of salvation often, but can anybody relate to this? Can anybody relate to those times, those seasons, or those experiences where you sin way more than you thought you would? (laughs) More often than you expected, in more horrific ways than you thought. And, And would you with me ever say that there's times where you feel like, Man, I, I've done this again. I just don't know if God is going to forgive me again. I know he forgave me then. I know he forgave me the third time and the 90th time. But now at the 1,059th time, can he forgive me again? Is there still an extension of justification for me in my daily sin? Because Christ lives, he is able to, to apply his work of our salvation, of his, his work for our salvation to our lives daily so that we have daily assurance. Daily assurance because Christ lives. Again, speaking on Romans 4.25, that verse, Christ was delivered up for our transgressions but raised for our justification. Jonathan Edwards says this. 
That verse means he was delivered for our offenses and raised again that he might see to the application of his sufferings to our justification and that he might plead them for our justifying. Plead them, the results of the cross and the resurrection, for our daily justifying because he lives. In other words, we have continued forgiveness in the work of Christ and continued assurance of that forgiveness. His mercies are new every morning. You know, there's something interesting that happens at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When Christ was resurrected in glory in his new body, he still bore the wounds of the cross, right? He still had the the nail prints in the hands and in the feet and the the wound in the side, as you see from our painting here. He, He still had those. And the Bible says that when he returns, he will still have those, that he bears them for eternity, When we're resurrected, any scars that we have, any flaws, any disease, any deformation will be gone forever. And yet interestingly, interestingly, Christ still bears the wounds. Why? Because they are in the living Redeemer, a testimony to the once and for all continued forever forgiveness for the believers so that we can be sure that when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness because he pleads our justification before the Father as he bears the wounds. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 24 and 25 say, but because Jesus lives forever, his priesthood lasts forever. That is his work on our behalf before God. Therefore, he is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. This intercessory work of Christ is not that he's there praying to the Father for us fully, though that may be part of it. It's that he's before the Father and before the accuser and before all the heavenly hosts bearing the marks, the testimony the witness, the proof, the ratification of our forgiveness before the Father. Again, uh, Romans chapter 8 says this, Who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us, and he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us, ever living to make intercession, so that Sister, brother, this week when you fail miserably in that thing, when you transgress in that thing, when when you sin in that way, when you get caught up in that thing again, when you willfully disobey God this week, you know that as you come to him in repentance through Christ, you have full forgiveness. Then, In that moment, now, it's not just that we are forgiven of our past sins. We are forgiven of our present sins. He still bears the wounds. And we will be forgiven of our future sins. He will forever bear the wounds. He ever lives to make intercession for us. Therefore, because he was resurrected and he lives and he bears the wounds and he intercedes for us, we have the assurance of our faith. As sure as Christ rose from the dead, we have forgiveness of sins through our faith in him. Can I get an amen? Amen. Can I get a bigger amen? 
Okay, that's just really good stuff. That's amenable stuff. Now, with regards to this redemption that we're talking about, there are steps that God takes in redeeming us and in redeeming the world. We kind of see this playing out in Romans 8.30. It says this. These whom he predestined, speaking of the Christian, right, chose us before all time. He also called, brought us to salvation. And these whom he called, he also justified through Christ, declared us not guilty and righteous. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. So part of redemption, part of our salvation is this idea of glorification. There is a sense in which it is current. We, we are glorified with Christ, so to speak. We'll get to that next week. But I want to talk about the doctrine of the future glorification of the saints, the final application of the work of Christ to the life of the believer, the doctrine of future glorification. One of my favorite theologians, Wayne Grudem, defines it thusly. Glorification is the final step in the application of redemption. It will happen when Christ returns and raises from the dead the bodies of all believers for all time who have died and reunites them with their souls and changes the bodies of all believers who remain alive, thereby giving all believers at the same time perfect resurrection bodies like his own. Now there's much to be thought about here, many questions to ask. So let's go to the text And let the Apostle Paul walk us through this. We'll start in verse 21. 1 Corinthians 15, 21. It says, So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. But there's an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest. Then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. Okay, so it talks about how in Adam all die, right? We are we have what is called original sin because of the sin in Adam and Eve, right? We we have original sin, sinful flesh, sinful human nature. We also have practical sin, which in a way ratifies, proves, shows to be true the doctrine of original sin. Some would say, no, we're, we're mostly good. We're, we're good at the core. The Bible would say, no, we're, we're broken at the core. We're fallen at the core. We have original sin. We're, we're conceived in sin, David the psalmist even said. And that's proved by the fact that we do what you would expect someone who is conceived in sin to do. We sin. I just had a baby girl three weeks ago. Her name is Theodora Sunshine. She's the most beautiful, sweet, little, awesome, little thing. Little sinner. <laughs> Conceived in sin. And how long do you have to have a little baby, as sweet and innocent as they are, before you realize you're a sinner? Not long, right? It doesn't take long. Maybe more than three weeks. I'm not sure. It's debatable. But by 13, you know. My son is 13 years old. By 13, you know. You know very early on. Right? We were conceived in sin. We have original sin inherited from Adam and Eve. And we do sin, practical sin, showing that we are sinners that need to be saved. And that comes through Adam. But what comes through Christ is new life, 
forgiveness, justification, and glorification. The resurrection of Christ was the beginning of the doctrine of glorification. Those talked about in the Old Testament, we see it first in Christ. It was not a resuscitation. He didn't faint upon the cross and he wasn't revived in the cool of the grave. It wasn't resuscitation. Nor was it merely a resurrection like Lazarus that he would die again. It was a different sort of resurrection altogether in glory, eternal. Nor was it reincarnation that he was returning in a different body to atone for different sins. No, it was a resurrection in perfection, bodily and in glory. And that is what is in store for the believers. When he returns, all who belong to him will be raised in this same way. Now look as Paul explains this, picking it up now in verse 35. In verse 35 of 1 Corinthians 15. But someone may ask, how will the dead be raised? What kind of bodies will they have? What a foolish question. I actually think it's a good question. Paul thought it was foolish. We'll defer to Paul. What a foolish question. In other words, he's saying it's obvious. Here's how he explains it, an analogy here. When you put a seed into the ground, it doesn't grow into a plant unless it first dies. And when you put it in the ground, excuse me, and what you put in the ground is not the plant that will grow, but only a bare seed of wheat or whatever you're planting. Then God gives it the new body he wants it to have. A different plant grows from each kind of seed. Similarly, similarly, there are different kinds of flesh, one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are also bodies in the heavens and bodies on the earth. The glory of the heavenly bodies is different from the glory of earthly bodies. The sun has one kind of glory, while the moon and stars each have another kind. And even the stars differ from each other in their glory. Here's what Paul is saying in a nutshell. Paul can be complicated and wordy at times, but here's what he's saying. He's saying that in our resurrected bodies, there will be both continuity and discontinuity with our current bodies. Okay? This is important for the doctrine. There will be both continuity and discontinuity with our current bodies. He explains it with the analogy of a seed, right? So he uses wheat. When you take a seed and you plant wheat in the ground, that, that seed dies, but from that seed that died comes forth new life. Now what comes out of a wheat seed is a watermelon. No, it's not a watermelon. If you plant a wheat seed, you only ever always get wheat. There's some continuity. If you want a watermelon, you've got to plant a watermelon seed, right? You want an orange, you've got to plant an orange seed, unless you genetically modify the thing, but let's not even talk about that, okay? There's continuity. If you put a wheat seed in the ground and it dies, what comes forth from it is wheat. There's continuity with it. But there's tremendous discontinuity. When you plant a little watermelon seed, it's just a little tiny seed. What comes forth is this big, beautiful, voluptuous, juicy, wonderful, giant, colorful fruit from this little dead black seed. There is tremendous discontinuity. You put something minor in the ground, you get something glorious out of it. Think of a rose bush. You put a little seed in the ground. Here comes this bush that has this new life and it's glorious and it blooms and it's beautiful. But it only came from the seed of a rose. 
There is continuity. Your body will be put in the ground. And your resurrected body will come from this body. There will be continuity. But it will be very different. It'll be like a big, fat, juicy, awesome watermelon compared to a watermelon seed. It will be far more glorious. Continuity, but discontinuity. And this happily answers a question for us that we all ask at one time or another. Will I be recognized and will I be able to recognize people in heaven? Absolutely. Without a shadow of a doubt because there is continuity. It was truly Christ who was raised from the dead, right? He said in speaking to the religious leaders in John 2, 19, uh, destroy this temple, speaking of his body, and I will raise it up again in three days. It was still that body. There was continuity. It was still Christ. He was recognizable, but he wasn't immediately recognizable all the time. There was something different about this glorious new body. It was like the difference between a seed and a big, wonderful watermelon. So yes, we will be recognized in heaven. When I see my little girl, Daisy Love, who died a year ago, I will recognize her in heaven. But she'll be in glory. It'll be Daisy. I'll I'll know it, but it might take a minute because she's different. She's in glory. When you see your loved ones and you're seen by them, there'll be this glory that's different but it's you. You will have been resurrected from the dead even as Christ was. That's such wonderful news. I'm so looking forward to that. Paul continues on explaining what this will look like in verse 42. It is the same way with the resurrection of the dead. Okay, here's what it'll look like. Our earthly bodies are planted in the ground when we die like a seed but they will be raised to live forever. Our bodies are buried in brokenness, our bodies, buried in brokenness, but they, they, our bodies will be raised in glory, continuity, discontinuity. They're buried in weakness, but they will be raised in strength. They're buried as natural human bodies, but they will be raised as spiritual bodies. For just as there are natural bodies, there are also spiritual bodies. So Paul here now is telling us what these resurrected bodies will look like. And and it's hard to get out with language. We don't have a real detailed description. We can glean something from Christ and his resurrection, right? When we read the accounts in the gospels. But what he's saying is that in verse 42, this earthly, this natural body will die, but it'll be raised to a body that lives forever. It's this body, but it's, it's different. It will live forever. This body does not live forever because of sin, right? But this other body will live forever. I like the way the New American Standard Bible puts it. This perishable will put on imperishable. These bodies are perishable, like cheese, like cottage cheese. Can I get a witness? <laughs> These bodies are perishable, like they start to rot. They start to decay. They start to droop. They start to diminish. This perishable, though, will be raised imperishable. The new resurrected body will never droop. It will never decay. It will never rot. It will never diminish. It is built to last for eternity. This is such wonderful news. Verse 43, he says that these bodies will be buried in brokenness. That's why we die. We're broken beyond repair. Whatever it is, a car wreck, cancer, old age, 
There comes a time where this body just finally breaks down, can't be revived again, buried in brokenness, raised in glory, nothing broken about it. When we talk about God in his glory, we're talking about there is no flaw. There's just pure holiness, pure wonder, the glory of God. Not that we will be God, but we will be like him in glory, from brokenness to glory. Buried in weakness, again, verse 43, raised in strength. Verse 44, buried as natural human bodies, raised as spiritual bodies. This takes a moment of explanation lest we misunderstand it. When he says natural human bodies, he doesn't mean merely physical. He's talking about bodies and lives that are dominated by sinful nature. Like in 1 Corinthians, when he talks about the justification between a natural man and a spiritual man. He talks about these bodies are dominated by sinful nature, at least affected by sinful nature. So when he talks about then a spiritual body, when he says we'll be raised as a spiritual body, he's not talking about immateriality, right? The whole thing is about a resurrected body. He's not saying that we'll be immaterial at the resurrection. We will actually have a body. What he is saying is that in the resurrection, we will have a human body and a human life that will be dominated wonderfully by the Spirit of God. It'll go from the flesh and the power and the work and the failures and the domination of the flesh to the glory and the peace and the joy and the love of being dominated by the Holy Spirit finally. It'll be a body that is perfectly suited for obedience to God. No more struggle with the flesh. No more do I do it, do I say it, do I click on it, do I steal it, do I think it. No more battle with the flesh. We will be given a new body that is perfectly suited for obeying God and for fellowship with God. Finally, fully consistent with the character, nature, and work of the Holy Spirit will be our bodies. The spiritual body means it's completely ruled by God's spirit rather than fallen human nature. Now that's only partial. The flesh and the spirit wage war against each other even though we've been freed from sin. Then it will be full. No more war. Only a life and a body fully subject to God's glorious spirit. Paul rejoiced in this when he said this in Romans 7. Tell me if you can relate to this. I know that nothing good lives in me. That is in my sinful nature, right? I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. Can anybody relate? Anybody like this? Anybody ever feel like that? Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God, the answer is Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's such wonderful news. That is our redemption. That is what we've been predestined for. That is what we've been called to. That is why we've been justified. That is glorification. Paul continues now in verse 45. 
He says, the scriptures tell us the first man, Adam, became a living person, but the last Adam, that is Christ, is a life-giving spirit. Again, not immaterial. What comes first is the natural body, then the spiritual body comes later. Adam, the first man, was made from the dust of the earth, while Christ, the second man, came from heaven. Earthly people are like the earthly man, and the, he- and the heavenly people are like the heavenly man. Just as we are now like the earthly man, we will someday be like the heavenly man. What I'm saying, dear brothers and sisters, is that our physical bodies cannot inherit the kingdom of God. These dying bodies cannot inherit what will last forever. He's simply saying here that as we were created and because of sin we die, we will, in a sense, be recreated, renewed, resurrected, given an existence that is fit for eternity. With continuity, it's still you. But with discontinuity, it is glorious, patterned after Christ. Listen to me. There is no other religion, no other philosophy, no other school of thought, no other leader that can offer anything like this or has ever even dared to. Think of the sad materialists who are so prevalent in our culture today. This life is all they get in their ideology. When they die, they are worm food. So if they want anything good, they better fight for it in this life. They better accumulate. They better grab for themselves. They better climb the ladder because when it's over, they lie in the ground and that's the end of it. Something so much better in Christ. Think of the mythical view of the ancients that said when we die, we just devolve into a ghostly shadow of ourselves. That's not as good as resurrection. I don't even like myself now, a ghostly shadow. (laughs) Think of the popular view of reincarnation, that we will, our soul will reappear in body after body, different sorts of bodies, always trying to atone for our sins, always dealing with our bad karma. That's not glorious recreation. That's drudgery. That's slavery. That's misery. We've been promised something so much better in Christ. And nobody ever rose from the dead to prove reincarnation. So don't believe it. Think about what Plato taught that all matter is evil and the body is evil and death is simply freedom from this evil body. Death is not simply freedom. Death is glory in Christ. Think about the Hindus who say this body is merely an illusion. And when we die, what survives is an impersonal cosmic consciousness. Whatever that means. (laughs) But you see, matter is not evil. It's part of God's good creation. When God made man, he said, it is good. Though it has been tainted by sin, God's goal in redemption is not to destroy, but to make brand new. This is dependent upon Christ's resurrection from the dead. Only In Christ, do we become greater after death than we ever were in life? Only in Christianity is our broken, lowly, perishable, corruptible body transformed into glorious, forever imperishable, strong, spirit-ruled existence. This is good. This is really good news. Philippians 3.20 says, Our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
whom by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Now, Paul continues with a little secret in verse 51. But let me reveal to you a wonderful secret, he says. We will not all die, but we will all be transformed. It will happen in the moment of a, in, in a moment, in the blink of an eye, when the last trumpet is blown. For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever. And we who are living will also be transformed. For our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. So when does this resurrection from the dead for the believer take place? It takes place when Christ returns, right? When Christ comes again. And that's what we read in the text in 1 Corinthians. That's what it says here again in 1 Corinthians. At the last trumpet, when Christ comes again, we will be raised in our physical bodies. So that begs the question for my daughter Daisy who has died, for our friends, our family people that we know who have died, what, 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 what's going on with them? Paul said in 2 Corinthians, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The moment a believer dies, they go to be present with the Lord in some way that is not the glorified body because a glorified body comes when Jesus returns explicitly in the New Testament. The glorified body takes place when Jesus returns. He says, there is coming a day in the gospel of John when the dead will hear my voice and rise from their graves. It happens when Jesus comes again. The dead in Christ shall rise first. Those who have died will come with him. Their bodies will resurrect My little girl in the Carpentry Cemetery, her body will resurrect in glory out of the ground. Some of you are thinking, what about grandma who is cremated? God will sort it out. The vase on your mantle, she will resurrect out of it into her glorified body. What if I get eaten by a shark? God will sort it out. You will be resurrected from the bottom of the sea, a shark fecal matter. You will be resurrected. In glory, when Christ comes again at the last trump, the dead in Christ will rise first. And then here's the little secret he's telling us. Those who are alive and remain will be transformed. So if we're alive when Jesus returns, we don't have to die and then be glorified. We are instantly changed, transformed, glorified, metamorpho. In the Greek, it's a word that we use for metamorphosis. It's like a butterfly who goes from being a caterpillar to a beautiful thing. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, when Christ comes again. Don't you want to be alive when that happens? Isn't that going to be the biggest trip in the history of the world? The dead in Christ will rise to the trumpet. And here they come, glorified bodies, and then we were alive and remain transformed, and thus we shall ever be with the Lord, the Bible says. Gosh, this is good news. I like this stuff. So did Isaiah. Isaiah said this 700 years before Christ. Isaiah said this. He said this. 
But those who die in the Lord will live. Their bodies will rise again. Those who sleep in the earth will rise up and sing for joy. For your life-giving light, it's Christ, will fall like dew on your people in the place of the dead. The psalmist sing about it in Psalm 16. No wonder my heart is glad and I rejoice. My body rests in safety, for you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. You will show me the way of life, granting me the joy of your presence and the pleasures of living with you forever. Jesus brought this good news to a sister who was mourning the death of her brother and claimed that he was the only way. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And then in 1 Thessalonians, it's made crystal clear. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died and the dead in Christ will rise. So then look what it says in verse 54, 1 Corinthians 15. Then when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, this scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? For sin is a sting that results in death and the law gives sin its power. But thank God, he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. So my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord. For you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. The doctrine of the resurrection and future glorification tells us that death does not have the final word. Death is so painful. We think of death as being natural, but actually the Bible says it's unnatural. It's an enemy. It's not the way God intended it to be. That's why we're not equipped to deal with death. That's why it breaks our hearts. That's why that separation seems so radical to us because it is. It's an enemy to be abolished, but there's coming a day where we will all say, oh, death, where is your sting? Your victory is, or yours is swallowed up in the victory of Jesus Christ. Death does not have the last word. Jesus, our Redeemer who lives, has the final word. Therefore, be strong. Be immovable. Don't be overwhelmed by the death that we see in this world. We can weep, we can mourn, but we're not overwhelmed by it. We, we don't weep the way those who, have, those who have no hope do. We have this wonderful hope in Christ. So we see tragedy slightly different because we know that Christ is coming to set all things right. We see these Difficulties facing humanities that seem insurmountable, slightly different because we know we have a risen Lord who is King of Kings who's coming again to establish his rule and his reign. And we see the death of lost ones and even our own death as very different because we know that we shall rise with him in glory and thus we will always be with the Lord. So we're strong. The Christian woman, the Christian man is strong and we're immovable in these glorious truths. We're not thrown off course by the stuff of this world because we know that Christ has risen from the dead. But Romans chapter eight, very quickly go there. How quickly can you get there? Romans chapter eight. 
beat you there. Verse 18 says this, Romans 8, 18. What we suffer now, what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory that he will reveal to us later. Let that sink into your hearts and minds, Christians, because in this lifetime, you will have trouble. But take heart, Christ said, I have overcome the world. But what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. For all of creation is waiting eagerly for that day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse, speaking of the fall, but with eager hope, speaking of redemption. The creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. It's not only the believer who will be resurrected in glory, all of creation will be made new in Christ. And all of creation is longing for this, is what the text is saying. Verse 22. For we know that all creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope, for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. We were given this hope when we were saved. If we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. But if we look forward to something we don't have, we must wait patiently and confidently. Confidence in these future promises. Why? Because Christ rose from the dead. It is historical. It is evidential. It is defensible. The whole of our salvation hangs upon it. And if Christ rose from the dead, then every word that he ever said is absolute final truth and can be trusted with the fullness of our lives. Therefore, Daisy will rise from the dead. You and I will rise from the dead. All of creation, it says, will be renewed. Therefore, be strong, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord because nothing you do in the Lord is in vain. Your life matters. He'll resurrect you. What you do in this world matters. He'll resurrect it and make it brand new. And it looks like this, Revelation 21. You can get there quickly. Otherwise, I'll read it to you. Beat you there. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared and the sea was gone also. Not meaning that there won't be waves, meaning there's no separation between people. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I had a, heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people, the return of Christ. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, write this down for what I am telling you is trustworthy and true. And he also said, it is finished. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. Jesus. What glorious news we have in Christ, in Christ alone and what he's done for us. And so Peter would tell us we live in a really expectant, 
joyful way, even though life is hard. Look what Peter would say, and here's where we finish. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy that we have been born again because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now we live with great expectation. And we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive this salvation, which is ready to be revealed on the last day when Christ returns for all to see, continues. So be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though you have to endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It's being tested as fire tests and purifies gold. Well, your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. So you love him even though you've never seen him. Though you do not see him now, you trust him and you rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy. This is the wonderful hope we have in Christ. Amen? Amen. God, these things are so good. Thank you, God, for so great a salvation that it wouldn't be lost on us, Lord, or anyone else in this room. That everyone here would recognize that Christ, you truly are who you claim to be, the only unique Son of God, the only Savior of the world, the only one who could pay for our sins, the only one who rose from the dead in glory to give us new life. That we would now put our faith fully in what you've done for us that we would every day put our hope completely in your finished and present and future work, which is for our good and your glory. And Lord, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, help us to live lives that are worthy of so great a calling. Help us, Lord, to forsake sin and pursue righteousness, truth and love with those who call upon the Lord with a pure heart. Help us to walk in obedience to you. We have so great a salvation. Help us to walk in a manner that is worthy of what you have done for us, what you're doing with us, and this future glory that is promised to us. Lord, for those who are heavy-hearted and broken-hearted, as I am, thank you that you give us hope and even inexpressible joy in the resurrection. Thank you for these glorious things, Lord. May our lives and our praise be worthy of it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.